Exceeding Expectations, episode 93. It did. You know, it's funny. I remember someone saying to me before I wrote my first book that, um, you know, I was wanting to and I was going through that process of getting rejected and wasn't sure if it was going to happen. And he said to me, look, I hope you get your book published. It'll be great if you do, he said. But the truth of the matter is, the day your book comes out, you're not going to know anything more about the topic of the book than you did the day before it came out, right? He said, but the world is going to relate to you differently because they're going to go, oh, you wrote this book, right? And I would say the process of writing that book and any book does help crystallize thoughts and ideas for sure. And at the same time, there is a little bit of element of it. I wouldn't say it's BS, but it's like now the world can relate to us as an expert. It's kind of like any accomplishment or milestone in life. Welcome to another edition of Exceeding Expectations. My guest today, Mike Robbins, who is a former professional baseball player and he's written five books and he helps companies with their leadership and their company culture. And we're going to obviously hear a lot more from Mike in just a couple of minutes. Why not subscribe to this podcast? The podcast is to help give you ideas how you can give your customers a better experience and hopefully that you'll enjoy more as well in the, in, the, in the greater, better relationships you develop with your customers. Please do leave a review for us on iTunes or one of the other podcast platforms. And why not share this episode with someone who could really benefit from some of the wisdom that Mike shares with us. Hope you enjoy today's show. Exceeding expectations, my guest today, Mike Robbins. How are you, Mike? I'm good, Tony. How are you? I'm very well, and I, I think you're in a place that's a damn sight warmer than where I am. <laughs> yeah, we get pretty good weather here in California. Uh, well, and isn't that normally the case? Yes, yeah. We're, uh, we're, right. we're very blessed. We call it the sunshine tax. It's part of why it's so expensive here. Although not too cheap where you live in London, right? No, not the cheapest place in the world, no. <laughs> um, and is, is that where you're from? Yeah, I grew up here, actually. Born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, where I still live. Oh, cool. And what is it you do, Mike? So, uh, for the last 20 years, I've had a consulting business, and we focus on leadership and team development, work with clients like Google and Wells Fargo and you know Microsoft big companies. And I've written five books, including my most recent, We're All in This Together. So, I spend a lot of time speaking and writing. Right. And how did this all come about? Where did that start? Well, my my early life was very different. I was an athlete. I actually um, grew up playing baseball, which is something a lot of us here in the States do, at least when we're little kids. And uh, I was pretty good at it. I actually got drafted out of high school by the New York Yankees. I didn't end up signing with the Yankees because I got a chance to play baseball in college at Stanford University and then played there and got drafted out of Stanford by the Kansas City Royals, another pro baseball team here in the States, and uh, ended up signing a pro contract. And the way that it works in professional baseball is you sign a contract with a major league team, but you have to go into their sort of minor league farm system and work your way up to the major leagues. Unfortunately for me, I was a pitcher and I got injured. I tore ligaments in my elbow when I was still in the minor leagues. So I ended up uh, getting hurt at 23 and then three surgeries later was finally forced to retire at 25 after starting playing baseball when I was seven. So it was a pretty devastating, you know, life change for me. But Tony, yeah. it, taught, it taught me a lot about life, about teamwork, about adversity. Um, I ended up coming home and getting a job in the late 90s working in the dot-com world. Worked for a couple internet companies for a few years. 
and was fascinated by some of the similarities. I mean, sports and business were obviously very different, but I had really become fascinated by team dynamics when I was playing baseball all those years because I was on some teams where we had really good talent, but the team wasn't very good because like uh, mm-hmm. egos and people didn't get along and coaching or whatever it was. And then I was on some other teams where the talent was, you know, decent, but not great. And the team was fantastic. We would like beat other teams that, you know, had better players than we did, which was kind of confusing, but interesting. And then I erroneously thought this had something to do with sports. We called it team chemistry in sports, but no one exactly knew what the heck that was, but it had a huge impact. And then I got into the business world and realized, oh, that's not a sports thing. That's a human thing. Mm. We just call it culture in business. And so my curiosity and interest in that, as well as kind of, you know, what it takes for an individual to really get the most out of their talent and then have some fulfillment with whatever success they're able to create, had me Mm. start my consulting business. 20 years ago. So that's really what I've been focusing on for all this uh, time since then. And who, when you started your consultancy business, were you very clear on who it was you wanted to help? No, no idea, actually. I mean, yes and no, I would say. It was more, I just had this sense of, I have a story to tell. I was young. I was 26 when I started my business. Mm-hmm. I wanted to tell my story. I wanted to share what I'd learned. I wanted to share some of what I'd seen what I, what, is, what I was curious about with respect to what it takes to really create a great team. And mm-hmm. I thought there would be some interest from people on a personal level. I thought there would be some interest from some companies on a sort of team and organizational level. But, you know, I was so young and naive. I didn't really know what I didn't know. But, and mm-hmm. I got sort of forced into it in a way. I mean, the dot-com bubble burst in 2000. I lost my job. I was out of work and I had a mentor of mine ask me, you know, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I said, well, I would write and I would speak and I would try to inspire people. And he was like, oh, you should do that. You seem pretty clear. And I was like, now? What? what? I don't even know how to create a business like that. So I went into it. You know, there's probably a lot of people listening, entrepreneurs listening, who are like really clear, have a great idea and like, let's go make this happen. Here's the business plan. That was not my approach. My approach was like, can I actually make money doing this? Can I, you know, do I have to go get a job or can I pay the rent with this? Like, I was really passionate about it and called to it. But my process and my path to get into it was, you know, a little bit just sort of, let me see if this will work. And, uh, you know, 20 years later, I've, I've definitely figured a few, th- few things out and gotten a little more organized about it over the last two decades. But it wasn't that way going in. So it was a bit of a bumpy start. Yeah. And, and how did that turn out then? Well, obviously it turned out well in the end, but how, say, I guess the first few years were a bit hard? Well, yeah, I mean, I think in, in hindsight, a couple things happened for me. I met my wife, Michelle, right around the same time, and she had actually started her own business. She had a staffing company, which was obviously diff- very different than what I was doing. But she really encouraged me and was like, you can do it. Look, it's not as hard as you think. And what I also was able to do was start to reach out to and find a number of mentors to help me because there was just a lot of stuff that I didn't know. And mm. I think it also helped that I was young and kind of, you know, naive in that sense. And I didn't need to make a lot of money in order to live, even though I was living in, you know, the city of San Francisco, which as we were just talking about, is not a cheap place to live. But again, looking back now, I, I realized how relatively inexpensive my life was. I wasn't married, mm. didn't have kids, didn't have a ton of responsibility. So I was able yeah. to kind of fail my way a little bit through those first couple of years. And it was lean, but I was really passionate about it. So I knew there wasn't anything else that I really wanted to do. And would you say there was a moment during those first few years where you suddenly had like a light bulb moment or everything suddenly started to make sense? Or did you have any sort of thing like that? 
I don't know that there was one moment. I mean, there were a series of moments. I would say what happened for me, and I think this is true for a lot of entrepreneurs early on, especially depending on what we're doing. You know, it's kind of a zigzag process, or at least it was for me. You know, I'd go through a stretch where I'd think, oh, this is a terrible idea. I should just go do something else. And then Mm -hmm. something would happen. I I did this thing where I just started, I was telling everybody, I mean, this was before social media and before it was sort of easy to kind of post whatever was going on. I just was emailing and having conversations with lots of people. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. And inevitably what would happen, Tony, is on the the worst day, the day that I would go, oh, this sucks. I got to quit. This is ridiculous. I would get a Mm -hmm. random email or phone call from someone who would say, hey, Mike, I heard about this or someone gave me your name or could you do, you know, and it would just give me, it would infuse me with some energy that like, hey, maybe I'm on the right track. Maybe I can do this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was a series of those things over the first couple of years that kind of the ebbs and flows and ups and downs of of starting a business. But, you know, I had some great support from Michelle and from some people in my life that kept encouraging me. So that helped me. And as far as the book writing is concerned, I mean, mm-hmm. so you've got five. I mean, so when the first one, how did that come about? <laughs> so I started my business in 2001. And mm-hmm. one of the things I wanted to do right away was I want to write a book. I mean, if I'm going to be out in the world speaking and trying to inspire people, I mean, that's what you do, right? I would turn on Oprah or I would, you know, read magazines or see different things and think, well, that's where you go and that's what you do. I didn't know how to do it. I had no idea. But I started to read some books and meet some people like, how do you write a book? And I actually started my book in 2001 that ultimately, you know, was a journey. And I ended up learning a lot about literary agents and the publishing world and how you do it and what you need and all the, all this stuff. And you know, over the next five years, I did finally get a literary agent. I got rejected by like 25 publishers. I found my literary agent dropped me. I found another one. It was like a really bumpy, long process. But by early 2006, so now we're talking, you know, a full five years later, uh, finally got the yes from a publisher that they would publish the book. And then it was another year and a half long process to write the book and actually, uh, get it out. It, my first book, Focus on the Good Stuff, came out in August of 2007. But I had started my business in 01, so I was speaking and I was coaching and I started to dabble in a little bit of article writing and even blog writing, although it was the early days of people having blogs. But my mm-hmm. first book didn't come out until you know, uh, 2007 when I was you know, six and a half years into the business. And so you, you, you mentioned that when you first started speaking, you know, it seemed everyone had to have a book. Mm-hmm. So when, when you eventually got the book out, mm-hmm. did, did, was it, did, were the results what you hoped for or was it quite different? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it's kind of like one of the things, I mean, this is a weird analogy, but writing a book to me, my experience of writing and publishing my first book was a little like having our first baby. We have two girls who are 14 and 11 now. Like it was a huge deal and I knew it was going to be kind of life altering and it was going to take a ton of work and change a lot of things. And it did, but whatever I expected it to do or expected it to be. And then when it turned out to be, were quite different in some ways it was harder than I thought. And I expected the book would come out and the phone would start ringing off the hook and Oprah would call me and like my whole life would change. And that didn't happen quite like that. It doesn't usually happen for most people, but it did over time significantly impact and transform my business. And there are so many places, I mean, now 13 plus years later with five books, there's so many things that I do and clients that I get to work with and our team gets to work with and opportunities that I look around and go, oh, if I hadn't written that specific book, whichever one of the five or just any of them, 
I wouldn't be in this room. I wouldn't have gotten this opportunity. I wouldn't be talking to this person. It's po- you know, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now, Tony, if I hadn't written that first book, let alone my more recent yeah. one or whatever, because it just, you know, so I think there are things that we do and the challenge, at least for my business, now obviously a lot of people listening probably aren't necessarily authors and have consulting businesses like mine, but there are things mm-hmm. that we do in our businesses, like writing a book and publishing a book actually is an, is a huge investment of time, of money, of resource, of energy, of everything that in the yeah. short term, each time I've done it, um, you know, it's a little bit of a debt at first that you ultimately then hope, you know, you're sort of mortgaging a lot of your time and energy to hope that a, it can have an impact and people will benefit from it, but it's going to create more business opportunities and there's going to be a real, you know, long tail of, of, of impact from it, which has been true for each of my five books. And that first one probably most significantly, cause it kind of got me in to a new realm and to a different sort of level in my career. And, and I, I've heard you know, many people say um, just that process of, especially the first one, just sort of crystallizing your thoughts into yes. you know, that, that really helped them with your, your speaking career as well. It did. You know, it's funny. I remember someone saying to me before I wrote my first book that, um, you know, I was wanting to, and I was going through that process of getting rejected and wasn't sure if it was going to happen. And he said to me, look, I hope you get your book published. It'll be great if you do. He said, but the truth of the matter is, the day your book comes out, you're not going to know anything more about the topic of the book than you did the day before it came out, right? He said, but the world is going to relate to you differently because they're going to go, oh, you wrote this book, right? And I would say the process of writing that book and any book does help crystallize thoughts and ideas for sure. And at the same time, there is a little bit of element of it. I wouldn't say it's BS, but it's like now the world can relate to us as an expert. It's kind of like any accomplishment or milestone in life you know, again, it's like getting married. Is it a big deal? It's a huge deal. But, you know, unless you met your partner like three weeks earlier, it usually doesn't significantly change your relationship in the moment. It's like Michelle and I were together for four and a half years before we got married and our wedding was awesome. We got married in 2005, but it wasn't like the next day. Yeah, it felt a little different, but I looked at her and was like, oh, we're still the same people we were two days ago. We're just married now. And you know, you decided to take my last name. Thank you. And you know what I mean? So it's those lines of demarcation, I think sometimes in life and in business in particular, when I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs myself, even really successful ones, there often are watershed moments to the, your question earlier, like, was there a point when, you know, it kind of clicked. But a lot of times I think, you know, it's a process of sort of few steps forward, few steps back. And it's hard to really know what's happening while we're in the middle of it. It's more when we look back, like I can look back at my life, particularly the 20 years of doing this work and look at some milestones and some moments in my business and have some perspective. But when they were happening, especially in the early days, I didn't have a ton of perspective about them. Yeah. And so coming back, coming, well, coming forward to, to today. So mm-hmm. what is, what is it you mostly help people with now? And what do you speak about now? So mostly what I focus on is leadership, team performance and company culture. So, you know, like my new book, We're All in This Together, the subtitle of it is Creating a Team Culture of High Performance, Trust, and Belonging. So companies bring me in, big companies, you know, sometimes smaller companies, but a lot of the companies we work with are, you know, companies in Silicon Valley where I live. And and they're asking me and our team to really help them, help their leaders develop some of their, you know, leadership capabilities and their skills, help their teams really come together and trust each other and collaborate more effectively. And ultimately, help their culture as a whole, you know, really be engaged and, and one in which people can thrive. 
And when you're so your speaking engagements are mm-hmm. to what kind of audiences are you speaking to? You know, sometimes it could be a big leadership conference, a big sales conference. It could be a customer event. It can be, you know, more of an all hands meeting. I mean, in, you know, in the last few months, obviously there haven't been any large gatherings of people in person. So they've all been on Skype or Zoom or WebEx these days, which is mm-hmm. a little bit uh, of, a, of an odd environment to be in. But mm-hmm. yeah, the audience, you know, and sometimes, I mean, I could be sitting around a table with the CEO and his or her executive leadership team and there's 10 or 12 people in the room and we spend half a day or a full day or a couple days, you know, up in Napa or somewhere at an offsite. And then sometimes it could be, I come and speak at a, you know, big sales conference in Las Vegas or a big, you know, leadership conference in London or something. And, you know, there's a couple thousand people there and I'm just giving a 45 or 60 minute keynote on some of the core elements of my work and telling some stories and sharing some of the research. So it sort of runs the gamut. Do you prefer a smaller intimate audience or you, do you get more buzzed from like a huge audience? I, you know, I like them for different reasons. I mean, the being on stage in front of a big group of people is both a bit terrifying and super exhilarating. Um, Mm -hmm. and I've done it for so many years. Like, you know, I, I think I'm pretty good at it. I enjoy it. It, it, you know, it's, it's an exciting challenge and there's a lot of uh you know just personally it it feels good to get to you know talk to and and impact that many people and you know and there's a little ego part of it like hey i'm the guy up on stage and then the smaller more intimate groups um i enjoy that because of the depth of the conversation because of the openness even the vulnerability of that and the ability to you know see a group and see a team and see a group of of people who really work hard and oftentimes like all of us have challenges like work through some of those challenges and be able to help um, mm-hmm. that that's really fulfilling to me and and the relationships are that much deeper and stronger and some of the companies we work with some of the teams that we partner with we partner with over a significant amount of time so I get to see them grow and change and develop and you know deal with challenges and overcome them and so that part's pretty cool too. I know you've got a couple of stories to sort of illustrate yeah. how you've exceeded expectations. I mean, you were telling me one about Hughes Marina. Yeah, so Hughes Marina is a great company. I, we've been partnering with them actually for uh, nine years. So they're a small commercial real estate company uh, based in San Diego, California, but have grown over the last nine years since I started partnering with them. Um, and it's been, you know, the, like the the way in which I've, I learn a lot from my clients, so I've learned from them, but the way in which, in terms of exceeding expectations, more recently as we've gone through this pandemic and this challenging time, one of the things that, that we've been doing with all of our clients, particularly the ones that we've worked with a lot over the years, is just reaching out to them, you know, seeing how everybody's doing. And the business part of it is, can we support them in some way? But also just the personal part, knowing that this is a tough time. So with Hughes Marino... I actually, not that long ago, reached out to them and the owners uh, of the company, Jason and Shay Hughes, and, you know, asked how they were doing and what was going on. And they were having to make some tough decisions in their business, like many businesses. Mm -hmm. And I just offered and said, hey, if you want, I'm happy to come on and do, you know, a WebEx session with the whole company. And their company has about 100 people, so it's not a huge company. And they were just so grateful and so excited because I've spoken at so many events. Almost once a year, I'll go down to San Diego. They'll do a gathering. We do customer events. I mean, I'm sort of part of their team and their culture. But just the little moment of me offering to do that, I didn't. I wasn't asking them to pay me to do it. It was just, hey, I want to do this. I care about you guys. Like they were so touched, 
And we did that. And it actually was really simple from my perspective, you know, but from their perspective, it was a great opportunity for their whole team, all hundred people to gather on video and connect with each other. But for me to share some of the things that we've worked on over the years and remind them of the great work they've done in terms of building their culture and their core values. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it seemed to me like a simple thing, but I really saw what an impact it had and how touched they were and how grateful they were and just a reinforcement mm -hmm. of the relationship that we have, but not something that they expected. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I think in general, I mean, one of the things I've been saying to a lot of my friends in this business, but in any business is right now, or whenever things are tough, can we show up for our clients in a way that, yeah, look, we're running businesses and everyone's trying to, you know, make money and make a profit. I mean, that's the reality of what we do. But, you know, without being too corny or cliched about it, it's like, can we really show up to be of service yeah. and trust that the service is ultimately going to have an impact? And people remember that stuff. Our clients remember those things. Yeah, because as you say, in, in a few months' time when all this, well, hopefully when this is all over, they're going to remember, well, might really help us out then. And so you're more likely to get more future bookings from it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think, you know, one of the things too, I think of another one of our clients named Dell Tech, which is a, they're a, a technology company based in the Washington DC area. And they work with a lot of um, companies that work with the government and they help them manage their project based businesses and, 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 and work with their sort of database and cloud storage and other things. And they've been a client for the last number of years. And I, they bring me in once a year to their big annual um, customer event that this year is going to be virtual, although most years is in person and, you know, a couple, four or 5,000 people. And they've had me mm -hmm. speak as well as MC the event. And one mm -hmm. of the things that last year they had their big event in Orlando and they asked me if I was willing to do some creative things as the MC and the host of this event, in addition to my speaking and uh, they wanted me to make this video with their their video team and, and put on this blue tuxedo and do this kind of corny, cheesy, kind of campy little bit, which is not really my shtick. I mean, I'm not, right? But yeah. I just said, absolutely. And I decided, you know, I'm going to dive into this thing 100% because why the heck not, you know? And at the end of the event, you know, in talking to the CEO, Mike, he said a few things. And again, I'm not saying this as a way to sort of brag about myself, but it was just like the thanking of me of really going out of my way to get to know and make personal connections with a lot of the members of their executive team, as well mm -hmm. as some of their customers and clients who are at this event that mm -hmm. when I got on stage every day at the general sessions in my hosting, you know, there was a whole script and all the stuff we were doing, but being able to share little anecdotes and little tidbits of what was happening, you know, Mike just said, look, we've been doing this event for many years. And the reason why we keep asking you back each year to do it the last few years is like, you really get us, you really know us. It feels like you're part of the team. And so one of the ways that I've always felt like I want to try to exceed expectations of our clients, and it's challenging because we have so many clients, which we're grateful for, but it's like, can I, and the other people on my team as well, can we put ourselves into their shoes, really try to listen and understand we're never going to know exactly what it's like to work for them and be on their teams because we're not, but can we be a bit of an extension of their team, if you will, bringing that outside perspective, but also knowing enough about the uniqueness of what they do. And, uh, you know, again, it all depends on our business. Can we actually make that happen? Cause if we're doing certain things at scale, it's harder to customize. It's harder to 
know a lot about our customers or our clients, but I think anytime we can do that, it really makes a big difference. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things I was thinking as you as you were telling that story is that many companies who book speakers for their annual conferences, they don't like to have the same speakers every year because they, they want to have something quite different. So, right. so often speakers, even if it's someone who really went down well, will only come back yeah. maybe once every other year or something. So to be there every year is, is certainly saying something about what they think about. Right. Well, and, and I've always looked at it like, look, I mean, I have my material, I have my core principles, I have my core you know, programs that I deliver. And I'm not going to try to be somebody that I'm not. I mean, part of the core message of my work is authenticity. Yet at the same time, again, and this is me, this is my business. I mean, everybody listening has a different business they focus on, but it's like, I like to think about myself without it being, you know, a sort of self-important thing as a thought leader, a thought partner. And Mm -hmm. so my job is, you know, to get to know our clients as well as possible, to know my material and the work that's important to me, and then marry those two things together, as well as even speak to the moment. Like the last few months, you know, I'm not an expert on pandemics. I'm not an expert on necessarily working from home or working in a virtual environment per se, but paying attention to what's been going on in the world and what's impacting our clients, it's been necessary to speak to what's happening. And, and mm-hmm. a, a, another way that I've learned over the years, like, again, just doing what I do, when I get up to speak at a big event or I come in to work with a leadership team, I always have a plan. I always have a thing I'm going to talk about or thing I'm going to deliver. But more than anything, one of my intentions is to show up and be present in the moment so I can respond to what's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's another way over the years, too, that I've practiced. Like, I'll sit in the audience before I get up to speak and listen to, or maybe I'm backstage, I'm listening to what's being said. And I try to respond to that in addition to like, I'm there to give my speech, but like the people in the audience, they don't care about my speech. They care about what's important to them. They care about what's going on in their lives or in the business or what challenges they're facing or what their CEO just said or whatever's happening. And so again, those are ways for me that I've looked at how do I exceed expectations of the clients that I work with. Part of it is by really caring about them and then trying to tailor and customize what I do as best as possible authentically to speak to what's most important to them. I'm wondering, in, in your talks, do you tie in any of your, um, you know, your sports career? I mean, do you tie that into your, how you, what you put across? Absolutely. All the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I tell a lot of stories. And, you know, one of the things, though, along those lines that's important, because I, I, one of the concerns I had when I first started speaking, Tony, was like, oh, but what if people don't like baseball? Or what if people don't like sports? I don't, wanna, I don't want to annoy people. I don't want to... Right. I'm talking like you live in the UK. It's like when I'm, I'm speaking in places where like there's not a lot of baseball in the UK or in most of Europe. So when I start telling baseball stories, a lot of European folks, if they're in the audience, are like, what the hell are you talking about? It's like talking about cricket here in the US. Like we don't know. We don't know the rules. We don't know the game. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. But, but what I've learned and I had this woman come up to me at an event years ago and she said something to me that I thought was really interesting. She said, you know, when you first started talking and they introduced you and you were a baseball player and you told your ba- I started rolling my eyes. She goes, I hate when people, and it's usually men, tell a bunch of sports, you know, metaphors. And they, cause like, A, I don't like sports. B, mm-hmm. I find it sexist and annoying. And it gets on my nerves, right? And she tells me this. And I'm like, she says, but I really liked what you just shared. Mm-hmm. And I said, really? And she said, and I hate baseball. And I said, okay, why did you like it? She goes, cause you didn't tell, you, you weren't sharing analogies. You weren't making references to things that I had to know. 
you were yeah. telling personal stories about your experience. Yeah. And she said, and I could relate to them, even though I don't know anything about baseball and don't even really like it. And that was actually a really good piece of feedback because what I realized, and this is not just about sports, but all of us, look, part of being an entrepreneur, part of being a successful business owner is being a storyteller, right? Yeah. And the, what's the story we tell about our business? But it's not so much, I think, about the business. It's like, can we tell personal and real stories that impact people? And here's one of the paradoxes of storytelling. The more personal, the more universal. Yeah. Right? Because if it's generic, if it's like, well, this thing, and it's like, well, I can't relate to that. But it, we think sometimes if I get too specific or too down into my own little story, like who cares, right? But the reality is when you tell the story in a way that's compelling and real, both mm -hmm. the, not just the hero story, I turned out and everything went great, but the whole thing, people can relate and they're interested. And so that's something that I've learned over the years is that if we can tell stories that are compelling, that are real and that are relevant now all of a sudden people are much more compelled. And is that something that you incorporate into your books as well? Do you do a lot of storytelling in your books? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always think, look, the truth of the matter is for me, from a teaching perspective, from an inspiring perspective, if you will, if that's part of what I do, um, you know, the here's the principles or here's the five steps to think. Like, that's never been my strength. Not that I don't still write those things and think those things and offer those things I do, but... By my nature, I'm a storyteller. And I've always believed, I remember, I think I read something or maybe I heard it somewhere many years ago. It was like, we listen to stories with a different part of our brain. Mm. So, and it's like stories can be, look, stories can be long and boring and annoying, right? But they can also be incredibly compelling. I mean, we watch, you know, movies and television shows because there's a story and there's an arc of the story and we're compelled by the story and riveted. And those are often yeah. fictional stories. But the but whether they're fictional stories or they're real life stories that we're telling, um, people remember that. I mean, I'll run into somebody in a random place and they'll be like, "Hey, you the, you're the dude that told the story about your mom," and I'm like, "What?" You know, and then it goes back to like some event from 12 years ago, and they kind of like remember me or my name or my face, but they remember the story. They don't remember like, "Oh, you ta taught us three principles on how to do the thing." You know, it was like they remember the story about my mom. You know. And so you're so in your latest book, we're all in this together. How mm -hmm. is that aimed at any sort of specific subset of leaders? And how do you think it would help them? It's really more geared towards anybody who's part of a group or a team, which is all of us, you know. Now, again, maybe we are an entrepreneur or have a very small team, a company that there's just a couple people. Maybe we work for a big corporation and we run a big division of that, right? But all of us are part of groups and teams and families. I mean, because of the companies that we work with, the Googles and the Wells Fargo's and the, you know, Chevron's and Microsoft's and Charles Schwab's of the world, you know, a lot of the book is sort of geared more towards somebody who works inside of a big organization and happens to be a leader or part of a team there. But a lot of what's in the book is relevant, irrespective of the type of business and the size of it. Um, but really the focus is there's four pillars in the book and each of them kind of build on each other. The first one's about psychological safety. The second one's about inclusion and belonging. The third one is about what I call embracing sweaty palm conversations, which is really being willing to engage in conflict and feedback in a healthy way. And the fourth one is about caring about and challenging each other. And these four things, through my research, through my experience, when teams are able to create that sense of psychological safety, which is kind of group trust, 
when they can create an environment where people really feel included and like they belong, when they can have those difficult but important conversations, and also have the ability to both care about each other genuinely, but also push and challenge each other effectively, they can thrive. So the book kind of delves into these four pillars, but really looks at, there's a bunch of stories and research in there, but there's, you know, techniques and practices. Here's what you can do if you're a leader. Here's what you can do if you're a team member. Here's what your whole team can do together if you're committed to these things. And I, I would imagine you're probably already working on your next book. You know, at the at this exact moment, no. Although, here's what I would say, two things. Um, it's funny, I don't actually love writing books. I like them when they're done. I like them when they're out. I like talking about them. So doing this with you is way more fun than actually writing the book. <laughs> um, and I wrote this one actually in a relatively soon after my previous one. My fourth book is called Bring Your Whole Self to Work, which came out in 2018. Um, but I've written five books over the span of, you know, like 13, 14 years and um, it's easier for me to spread them out a little bit over time just because of the amount of time, energy, and effort that goes into it. And right now, I would say my wife, Michelle, and our daughters are not on board with me writing another book anytime soon, just given the right. amount of work. That said, though, I often will say when people ask me, are you working on a new book? And I'll start getting this question a lot because I was for a while actively, obviously, working on this one. I'm mm-hmm. always probably writing like three or four books at any given time in my mind. Yeah. I'm just – I'm not yet sitting down – with a title and a thing and, you know, pitching it to my agent and my publisher and doing it because I just think, and look, a lot of us, whether you actually write the book or not, I think a lot of us are currently writing books and creating things, whether we do them, that's a whole other thing. Um, and that takes some discipline and some accountability and some focus and some support and some good luck and lots of other factors. Mm. But, uh, I'm sure there's, you know, a handful of different book ideas that are banging around in my mind and my heart at the moment. On the, on the subject of exceeding expectations, mm-hmm. can you think, um, has there been an experience where that you were on the receiving end of something that you just were not expecting? You know, it's funny. I mean, a, a number of things, but literally just this morning, I got an email back from one of our clients had asked if I would do, if I would shoot some videos for them and uh, something that I do from time to time, but they wanted to put it together in this digital course. And we put this whole thing together and because of, the nature of, of kind of what's going on right now, it's been a little bit more challenging to get some of this stuff done. So the production team that they hired, actually that's in, in London, in the UK, um, mm. said, hey, we're going to put these videos you shoot together and we'll edit them. And, and I was kind of, I've been kind of nervous about it. Like, how's this going to turn out? It might be weird. It might be cheesy. I don't know. But they literally mm. just sent us like a little clip to say, hey, what do you think? This is how we're putting it together. And I was blown away. Like, mm. I was like, oh my gosh this is amazing. Like this totally exceeded my expectations. Um, I was worried that it was going to be bad and I was going to have to give them a lot of feedback and let's not do this and maybe even pull the plug on the whole thing. But I looked at it and went, well, that's like 10 times better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> so I love when that happens. It's such a great feeling. Yeah. What does the phrase exceed in expectations? What does it conjure up in your mind? Hmm. You know, I think it, um, I mean, there's, you know, the, immediately what comes to mind is the whole sort of, uh, you know, under promise over deliver thing. So I think about, it's just like going above and beyond. It's like doing more than is required. Um, mm. And yeah, it's funny though. I would say if I'm really honest about it, I focus a lot on trying to exceed expectations in life with our clients and in general. Mm. And, and if you know me and you work with me and you're like, 
it's challenging to exceed my expectations because I have pretty high expectations. So it's a tricky thing because even when you ask the question about think of times, it's way easier for me. Maybe this sounds really arrogant, but I'll just say it. It feels like it's easier for me to remember times when I think I've exceeded others' expectations versus when they've exceeded mine. So I don't know what that says about me, but that's the truth. Right. Um, If people want to find out more about you, Mike, where's the best places to go? The best place is on our website, which is mike-robbins.com. And specifically with the new book, we're all in this together. If you go to mike-robbins.com forward slash together, there's a special page that we set up on the site that tells you all about the book. And if you order the book from there, uh, you can get some free bonus material uh, that goes along with the book as a thank you for picking it up. And social media? Social media? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and uh and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. So you can find me there at mike-robbins.com. There's links for all of them and um, like that. And do you have, I mean, apart from obviously, you mean, you've done five books yourself, but mm-hmm. are there any books that you sometimes recommend to people that stick out? Yeah, you know, that, I, I recommend lots of books to people for different things and there's new ones that come out all the time that, uh, but I would say the one that I've probably recommended the most over the years is a book called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and it's all small stuff by mm. Richard Carlson. It came out in the late 90s. Mm. Had a huge impact on my life. I got to meet Richard and know Richard, and he became a mentor. Um, he since has sadly passed away. But that book and the whole series of Don't Sweat the Small Stuff books are uh, simple but profound and uh, highly recommend them. What, was there anything in particular that stood out about that book? You know, just the... the just the clear, simple wisdom of like, life's not an emergency. Mm. Like, slow down. Don't get yourself all stressed out and freaked out about everything. M- most mm. things, if it's an actual emergency, you'll know. Most things aren't. Just chill out. <laughs> so, yeah. that's what I love. It's a good message for me and lesson for me back when I read it in my early 20s and even still now. It's, it's like that. So, yeah, in 20 years' time, will this really matter? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, that book was actually, it's a series of a hundred short essays, which he wrote it in 1997. It was basically a bunch of blog posts before there were blog posts, but you can open up the book to chapter 42 and there's just a message in there. And it's like, oh, that's what I needed to hear today. You can do it as like a daily meditation. It'll take you a minute or two to read the chapter and you're like, wow, what a great lesson. I can go practice that today with my family or with my clients or just out in life. So it sounds like it's kind of timeless. It would still be relevant now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I open up, I mean, I have all the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff books and I'll open them up from time to time and just read one of the chapters and be like, you know, I'll look up to the sky and say, thank you, Richard. I needed that right now. Mm. And, and finally, Mike, do you, is there a quotation you particularly like? Oh, I love quotes. I would say one of my favorites. I actually used it as one of my book titles is by Oscar Wilde. He said, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. Mm. Why does that speak to you? I think because I've wasted too much time in my life, even sometimes still do, thinking I should be someone else or be like someone else or, hey, that guy looks cool or she looks smarter than me or whatever. It's another, it's just a great reminder of like, there's only one us and we can't be anybody but us. So that's just a good way to live life. Well, Mike, thank you very much for sharing your stories. It's been, it's been a pleasure speaking. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Next week is episode 94 and it is with Keziah Robinson 
Duncan Kazaya um, is a business strategist and coach, and she helps CEOs, founders, executive leadership teams in many different industries um, and helps them just to improve their, their culture and many other aspects about their business as well. So that's next week with Kazaya Robinson. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Please do share it with someone who could really benefit from some of the, um, some of the great information and strategies and stories that Mike shared with us. Why not leave a review for us on iTunes or one of the other podcast platforms and please do subscribe and hope you have a great week.